Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. With Matt Petrowski at... Matt's house. Which Matt? This one. And that's what that's what I've done. We took the train, FM train, all the way up to uh, Portland, Matt's house, and we are here now. In my basement layer studio. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. All kinds of audio equipment. It's got the nice ambiance. It's uh, not too small, but it's not too big. It's got all the nice sound baffling like foam on the wall. So it's like professional quality. And 15 guitars. And 15 guitars. <laughs> <laughs> so FM Train's done. It was, uh, I think, a, a rolling success. That's my stupid joke. It was a big success. Which, rolling success, that works for me. I love it. Yeah, it was fun. Um, because of the short notice, we didn't feel like capacity. We were actually going to take, what, three people each? Yeah. And uh, instead, we got we got a few people, and it was actually better, I thought, because we were able to really focus, really invest our time, get to know those people, and spend the time covering what they wanted to know and what they wanted to figure out about FileMaker. Exactly. I think with... With more people, it would have been we would have had individually a little bit less time per person, of course, but there would have been also people helping each other and people sort of networking with each other, and that's a big part of it is just getting um, is getting that. I think the ideal number of people we're going to go for the next time will be six, so eight total. And the biggest one of the biggest reasons for that is when you're at the tables talking, the tables really only fit four. There are no tables where you can have five or six people sitting down. With four people, you can actually put one computer on the table, and four people can be looking at the screen, and I think that would be good. And I think we will do this again, and I think it might not just be between L.A. and Portland, but maybe other cities. Maybe we travel to the East Coast. Maybe we go to Europe. <laughs> I'm fine with that, definitely. I, I, just going back and forth on the same route isn't something that's totally interesting. I want to go to as many different places and see as many different things as I can. So we're just going to have to research uh, what is the next train trip that we want to take. It was sure beautiful seeing the scenery go by, getting up into the mountains and seeing the snow. It was a great place to geek out about FileMaker. Yeah, I actually, at the time we were passing Mount Shasta, I was still asleep. It was way early morning, but you said you got to see part of it, right? Yeah, I got up at around 7.30 in the morning that day, and we were just passing Shasta, and the sun had just come up, and it was really beautiful. Very, very cool. I wish I could have seen that. Of course, I did. once I did get up, uh, I saw it in the distance, and... The snow going through the middle of Oregon, it's absolutely awesome. Through the middle of California, it's not that big of a deal. You go through Fresno and Madera. I mean, nothing against Fresno. That's where I was born and raised. But it's not. the Central Valley isn't nearly as exciting as the beauty of Oregon. And then also on the coast, they had a diversion where they diverted the train. I don't know if you can use diversion like that, but <laughs> they diverted the train, and we didn't actually get to go on the coast for the first part, going up the this side of the coast to Santa Barbara. So we went up through Tehachapi, up through Bakersfield, and then on to Fresno and through the Central Valley. Yeah, actually, this train was really weird. In fact, that a lot of the route that we were on, no passenger train had been on, been through since 1971, I think someone on the train was saying. Yeah, that was true. It was funny because all along the track... Did you see the people outside that yeah. were taking pictures? And there were like people that there were people on the train that had uh, walkie talkies, which is sort of the same thing as sitting in an airline and plugging in to listen to the air traffic control. Where these guys were like listening to all the conductors and all the, you know, everything that was going on. They were total train buffs. There weren't too many, but definitely a lot of walkie talkies and little GPS devices and so on. Yep, I definitely saw that. And the coast route, I think, because they've been doing that same route 
I guess, most of the time. Uh, I would like to see the coast route, because we didn't get really see the ocean at all on this trip, which means the coast starlight was sort of half a lie. <laughs> it wasn't really the coast. <laughs> That's not what we were there for. We were there to geek out on FileMaker, and we did plenty of that. Yep, very much so. Got to see a lot of, uh, actually, some of the solutions that were brought were really, really cool. We saw very cool ideas, very cool implementations, and the problems that uh, were brought were also very interesting. That's the That's the thing that's the most fun to me is to see the variety of how FileMakers used, what people are trying to do, and then really you cannot underestimate the value of when you try to think of something on your own, you really only have the perspective that you've ever been exposed to, just singular. And you may have multiple ideas about something, but the big advantage is other people coming to the table and saying, oh yeah, well, have you thought about this and have you thought about that? And it, it pays great dividends to take that approach. Yeah, plus just you know, having you and I come at the same um, the same problem with a very different solution and a different set of tools. And I think even when you and I just sort of walk through why we like the scenarios that we've picked, I think that was probably really advantageous and beneficial to to people to sort of hear us talk out at at our level, or you know, for better or for worse, whatever, how we would do a thing and and why your way is dumb. <laughs> yes, and when your way became super silly and mine became smarter instead of dumb, it was, uh, you know, it's just different perspective. It was really sweet. Yeah, actually, and you totally talked me into several things. As Once we once you actually got all the way through the explanation of why you do it that way, it's like, oh, yeah, that does solve a whole bunch of other problems that I really should solve. <laughs> and yours and yours as well. I mean, your when you said, you know, I've used it and I've known about it before, but when you said, you know, why have the relationship and um, actually use the relationship and bring up more records than you ha have to, which I've always known that, you know, you do a search on Google and it gives you 2 billion results. Of course, you can only process the first 10, so it makes sense. You always show a subset, but your approach of uh, using find and go to do the find and then come back and then use a dynamic portal, which basically populates only based on what's within a global field to drive what that portal shows, that makes a lot more sense because you can't ever process any more than X amount of information. Yeah, we had a lot of discussion on this whole idea of you know using a, a portal, like basically you're trying to show a bunch of records on a main menu or something, on a heads-up display or a dashboard interface. Well, filter. Uh, in this right. case, it was he was filtering out information out of the whole of the information. Right, so he had a relationship that said, show me everything in the portal, and the portal had like, I think, 7,500 records. And then a filter that said, these are the 10 or 20 that I really care about from the search that I just did. And it was really slow. Because that's you would think that filters could work that way, but they just don't function well. They don't scale well when you get large record counts. And so we were talking about the different ways of doing it. You could just have a relationship where the relationship itself did it. But the solution I like is actually using a find and then just grabbing the keys of all the records and having a really simple relationship based on a, a global field that has a repeating set of keys to the key field in the table that you want. Hard to describe. I'm going to actually put a demo file together because I think it's pretty useful. I think uh, your advanced FileMaker or intermediate advanced will get that. Yeah. Uh, maybe not new. but And then from me, what was it you got? One of the things that you did, and I want to talk about it now, is you had a whole bunch of shortcuts for the graph that I did not know many of them existed. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, actually, Daniel over at uh, Wheatbix had recently done an done a article about uh, – using the graph efficiently and doing things, but I was mentioning some of the shortcuts that I knew of in the graph, which are? Well, I can't, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk about some of mine. I don't remember all the yours, and you had a very organized-sounding list. One of the ones that's my favorite is 
if you try to if you're trying to open up a relationship and you've got a really complex relationship, what you really are trying to open is a little equals, the thing in the middle of the line. And it's really hard to click on it if you if you really know the two table tables that you're trying to connect. So what I usually do is I click on the table occurrence and then I use the left or right arrow which selects the relationship in the middle. And if you click the left or right arrow again, it goes to the other table occurrence. But while it's on the relationship in the middle, you can hit Command-O, Control-O, and that actually opens up the the relationship, and then you can edit it. Right. Uh, which I think is easier than trying to double-click on the relationship. I think you got that one from somewhere else. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think I invented it. Well, all these things are maybe available, but you had like Command-Plus, Command-Minus, Command-I, and yeah. what do those do? Command I basically, if you think of it in terms of inspect the world, that's what I I don't know if FileMaker does it, but I use the word if I want to inspect the world view of my graph. When you're on the graph, if you use Command I or Control I, it will zoom out to the maximum width of the graph. And if you use really good placement of notes and organize your graph so that you know where sections are, in order to zoom into the area you want, you then hit Command Plus, which will switch to the magnifying glass to zoom in. That can zoom in all the way to 100%, but if you want to back it off a little bit, Command-Dash um, will actually turn on the, the minus, which will allow you to zoom out. Mm-hmm. So you can use all your command keys rather than having to mouse down to those actual tools in order to go zoom in and out of the graph. Another tip that I use a lot in the graph is when you're in the graph, you can actually type characters, and that will go to table occurrences. So all my table occurrence groups always have prefixes, so like... P for person, C for company, whatever. If you type in C underscore underscore, it'll go right to the head of your company table occurrence group. Do you use that much? Um, I've used it, yeah, for the um, for jumping when I know what I'm wanting to jump to. Most of the time I forget what I've named things, so zooming in and out is usually what I use. Um, so, And another tip is once you get there, if you need to make a note about it, just use command N. But that's where I've used the jumping is you can use um, the jumping to make a note that has a keyword of the area that you're working with, like um, invoicing aspect or customer's aspect. And then you can type in that and make it make sure it's unique, not necessarily going to conflict with your table occurrence. But that's how you can jump. You can also jump to notes. What other graph tips do you have? Um, other than just be as organized as you can. I mean, we've obviously, I think we've talked in the past about the difference between um, custom versus name-based sorting in the the uh, table where you see the field list. That actually, anytime you change that, that changes your lines, your, your actual yes. relationship lines so that they, they can cross over themselves. I've always preferred custom myself because I can always control what the order of the fields is, the the difficulty you have when you use a custom setting is that you can't necessarily add a new field and then if you drag it and then sort by name, then sometimes you blow out your custom uh, ordering. So it's always best that once you go custom, you're pretty much, you have to decide that I'm not going to go back to name. You can go back to name and then go back to custom as so long as you don't add a new field within that process. Right. Well, actually, if you add a new field, is that, was that what does it? If you go to sort by name and then you grab a field and change it, now you've just started recustomizing it. Yeah, there you go. That, that's what yeah. it is. is so it? I have to train other developers who work on my systems because I also to- am very focused on the custom order. Um, even though there's some value in naming your fields... I like to have my fields name really simply, city, state, zip. I don't call it 
address city, address state, address zip, such that they can alphabetically sort. I just call them city, state, and zip. And then I stick them in order next to each other, city, state, zip. And so all my address fields are all next to each other. And then I also like to put all my data fields at the first group and my key at the very top. And I don't want to have to name those fields in a stupid way just so that they can be sorted alphabetically. I just want to put them where they're supposed to be. That's just my own thing. Yep. We all have uh, different preferences. Uh, still lots of people like to use the Zs and the Fs and the Ks for the prefixes. Nothing wrong with that as long as it uh, makes sense to you and the organization is consistent throughout the whole solution. Yeah, I do that. I use C for calculated fields. I use G for global fields. I use S or SUM for summary fields, depending upon if it's a... Uh, if it's a summary type field or if it's a calculated field that uses a sum function or sometimes a lower upper or uppercase S and who knows. And yeah, Z and primary key and foreign key. And, but I still try to keep them really simple. And, and also sometimes I call ID fields just plain ID. And sometimes I call it company ID. I try not to do it the same way just to keep them guessing. I, yeah. Uh, over at filemakerstandards.org, that's pretty much the system that I use. I evolve it based on feedback feedback that people supply and then people that make suggestions. Like um, one of the standards on there with regards to developer tables, which are isolated occurrences attached to table occurrences, where, which are not attached to anything else. They're purely just for the developer, for you to see data, for you to interact with within your scripts, known fixed locations. We color on, on the standard site, we color green if it's within the file itself. We call it red if it's in that file, but it's data coming from a file outside of that file. Red being, you know, this is not local. Well, the, one of the people on the FM train said, you know, it'd be nice to know if this is, uh, you know, within the user interface file, but it's not necessarily a data table. It's like a utility table. Like and so, table. yeah, so he suggested a, a different color. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that, and that may make sense and stuff. We try to keep the standards uh, very straightforward and simple, not to the extent where here adhere to this and don't do anything else. It's very much extensible. You do what you want, add to it, take away from it. So we just provide the, the framework. Tell me some of the things you wish the graph would do. Oh, I've been saying things about the graph for years and years. There was a That's thing. why I'm asking. <laughs> there were things on um, – there was this really cool thing. I used to watch Survivor, and Survivor had this this little flash thing that came up with stats that basically when you clicked on a certain person, everything else that you weren't interested in would dim or hide or go away. And so this concept of being able to um, bring up table occurrence groups and just have that focus and only that be on the group. In fact, there's a, a popular program called Omni Outliner, which allows you to outline a bunch of things. And basically, you can just sub-indent all of your categories. Well, when you want to focus on one main branch, let's say that's at level one, they have this command that says hoist. And what that does is it just focuses on that one aspect of the whole of the outline. The graph should actually do that, and the graph should also give you clear indication about all of the attributes of a particular uh, situation. For example, between two table occurrences, I forget, it was probably 2003, I wrote up an article and shot screenshots and made Photoshop stuff. Um, you would have a plus on the side of which the allow creation of rec uh, related records is on, or a minus, which means delete, is going to delete ch uh, child records, or a little box with an S that indicates that this side of the relationship is sorted. 
And there should be not only notes that we have now in terms of notes, but also notes that are statically attached to a table occurrence with a little expanding triangle. I mean, there's just a lot of things that they could do on the graph that would really make it a lot more uh, user-friendly. Yeah, some people actually have – they actually name their table occurrences with a prefix or a suffix depending upon all those checkboxes. So if they have like – a relationship that's sorted, and by the way, sorted relationships are evil. Use them very sparingly. Side note. Why? <laughs> they kill performance. If you have a sorted relationship because you have a solution that was from 7 or 8 or something before, there was a way to sort it at the portal level. And then you have calculated fields that go that look through that relationship and summarize data. Every single time that calculation is joined every single time you're looking at those related records it has to sort them and the sort has nothing to do with with just adding up a bunch of records or counting how many related records there are and so whenever i have a sorted relationship for example if i'm using a list function against a sort a set of records because i only want to see the 50 most recent records or something the only way to do that the easy way to do that is a list function through the relationship which is sorted but when I when I have that situation, I'll also have an unsorted relationship next to it, the same exact thing, so that I, and I use the unsorted one for anything that I don't require that sort, so I'm not killing performance. And yes, that means I have a duplicate table occurrence for that same table, but still. Yeah. So essentially, you're it's a trade off of organization versus performance. So I guess the key thing would be here that by instead of generalizing and saying okay, as a whole. Sorted relationships are evil. I would say, like, um, not to contradict, you know, how you feel about the the sorting of the relationship. It's know what the impact is of certain features. That if you're going to display something within a portal that has a lot of records, if you're sorting that, and then you're putting another sort on the portal, and you're showing summary calculations mm-hmm. in that, know that all of those cumulative aspects will add to the performance. Whereas if you have a very small portal that the relationship is only going to pull 50 records, and those 50 records mm-hmm. happen to be the topmost 50 based on date, mm-hmm. then go ahead and sort the relationship because the display performance impact is really going to be minimal relative to wherever the sort, you know, it's one and a half of a dozen. It's the sort's either on the relationship or it's going to be a sort on the portal. Either way, FileMaker's going to have to sort that data to present it. So that's just something that you have to choose when and where you use it, knowing that other things could contribute to the cumulative impact. But what tends to happen is if you make that one sorted relationship at a really low level, like an invoice line item depart or whatever, you know, really down the road, and then you say, oh, I want a count of the number of line items on an invoice, which goes to that relationship. And then you say, I want a count of the number of invoices and the number of line items of those invoices at the customer level, two files away. And then you have a list of all your customers, which contains the number of line items of invoices for that customer. And one of those relationships is sorted. You're going to actually see sort dialog box coming up on the screen, sort, 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 one after another, just to display the list. And you're going to go, what's it sorting? I'm looking at 100 customers and the list of customers is not sorting. Why am I seeing 100 sort dialog boxes come up on the screen for a second each or two seconds each? It's going to confuse the hell out of you. And the reason is the relationship is sorted. But that's that's presuming you're using that relation, relationship for more than just that one use, which right, would be right. displaying the portal. Exactly, which is why I say make a second relationship that's not sorted and, and only use that one for things like counting the number of related records. And that's exactly what I would do. I wouldn't not use the sorted uh, 
relationship, I would use a sorted relationship for what it's good for, for the display of a minimal set of data, but for other aggregate type functions that I need to look across a, a wider range of records, yes, I'd use a, a, another relationship in order to do that. I want to really throw in a joke here that uses the word assorted and sorted S-O-R-D-I-D and sorted S-O-R-T-E-D, but I can't think of a good... I've got one. <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll work off of the word accosted. accosted. My relationship was assorted by something. <laughs> Instead of accosted, fun. That's good, yes. The other thing that we talked about on the train, which I wanted to continue on, is other things that we would, when we close our eyes at night and dream about what FileMaker might be, <laughs> what some of those things might be. For example, one of the really big ones is, how can we get FileMaker in the hands of more young people? How can we get more you know, fresh blood, fresh talent into the community? like IT people fresh out of college or anybody fresh out of college to get them interested in becoming FileMaker developers and not picking up other tools. And you had some really good ideas about this. I think we may have talked on the podcast about this, but this predominantly came about because one of the people that was on the train was, um, he was, he was under his thirties. He was mid twenties and he was there because he was being introduced to FileMaker because somebody wanted to take the time and effort to do that. And the, the topic came up that, I asked him, I was talking to another gentleman about whether or not, you know, what was, he was working with a developer and, you know, what were the issues that he was facing? And one of them, I think it came up that he, you know, he couldn't find good FileMaker talent. And so I turned to the, to the guy in his, you know, mid twenties and I said, okay, after I asked um, the older gentleman, I said, how much does FileMaker cost? He said, oh, it's, uh, how much does FileMaker advance? So he said, oh, it's four, $499, $500. So I turned to the younger guy and I said, okay, do you have $500? He, he said, no. I said, would you come up with $500 without knowing anything because he doesn't know very much about FileMaker. He's very mm -hmm. much learning FileMaker. Mm -hmm. He said, no. I said, are you interested in other technologies? He's like, yeah. I said, so you would want to learn PHP, Ruby, Python, whatever. He said, yeah, that'd be cool. I said, you can get those for free, right? He said, yeah. That, to me, is FileMaker's biggest, biggest problem is that because FileMaker has been proprietary, they keep everything to the chest, including the development environment, which is a big barrier of entry, as well as things like the developer conference. If they wanted to, they'd reduce the price of the developer conference and maybe have it be a little less... Um, prestige in terms of the price being perceived as this is a high-end event, mm -hmm. they would have a no cost for developer advanced. Anybody could download FileMaker Developer Advanced to get interested and start using the technology because FileMaker's business model, as far as I'm concerned, is get a company hooked on the infrastructure, use the platform because the platform is easy to use, but do not charge a, a, such a high amount that you're preventing people who don't have that money to get in. And I, I related exactly to when I started learning Photoshop, I never, ever would have learned Photoshop because they charge $400 for Photoshop. So what did I do? Well, I got a bootleg copy. I learned Photoshop. How many versions of Photoshop have I now paid for? I've paid for five of them, each of the upgrades. At each point in time, $500. But that was only because I was able to learn it because I took the risk and got a pirated copy. So make the developer... So are we telling people to go get pirated copies of FileMaker? No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> but we, uh, we are saying that if FileMaker wanted to grow their business, they must... This world, this notion of... There's a book called um, Freemium, which is a free book that you can get, I believe, from Audible that talks about the world of free. They have to make the development environment free in order to entice 
people who don't have any type of tie, like somebody that they right. know that's working with FileMaker or a corporation that's already using FileMaker and get those people interested because there are people like that that want to learn something that would rather learn FileMaker than going through the process of HTML, JavaScript, SQL, and Python as an intermediary language right. in order to make something. Yeah, if, if FileMaker gave away FileMaker uh, Advanced for free to anybody who wanted it, well, the thing is, Advanced is also a regular copy of FileMaker. That would completely end all of their single unit sales at stores. So that would obviously be a big revenue problem. But if they, if they had a version of it that was available for free, that only let you work with 100 records, but it let you do all of the development capabilities, which means you could develop everything. You could develop on a live database, you, you, but you could only work with 100 records or some number of records. That would be perfect. Well, and then I wouldn't debilitate it like that. I mean, it's really no well, big deal. But if you don't, then people are going to use it. They're going to... No, listen. Each version knows what version it is. If FileMaker Advanced, when it opens, connected to a copy of FileMaker Server, FileMaker Server could say, you're a copy of FileMaker Advanced. If I get any other connections from FileMaker Advanced, I will deny those connections. They could also strip out runtime. If people are going to try to use FileMaker Advanced in order to build runtime solutions, strip it out of Advanced and make it part of a, uh, of a server tool. process. Right. The whole objective is make the platform to use for a developer absolutely free so they can develop a full-blown solution for a even for a proof of concept for somebody else, for a company, whatever. So the company mm-hmm. can say, yeah, we'd like to use that, but you're not going to shoot yourself right. in the foot if you basically say, yeah, you can't have five copies of Advance connect to a FileMaker server. Yes, you, you should be able to because what if that other person says, oh, I want to have these other two people on my team – also work with advanced and they all want to be working on the same project with me like any other platform you definitely want that so the server shouldn't say it but i really think there should be here's here's the solution that i would if i was well filemaker would just say okay fine we will give you a license number that allows server to allow three connections from a copy of filemaker developer maybe i think i think the better way to do it is to still have a version of filemaker advanced that's that's costs money and have that one be what we have now a full copy of filemaker but have a free version of it available that has all the same capabilities for development completely, but isn't really a, a product that you could use to run FileMaker. So it's really just an development environment. In other words, it, it does everything perfectly up to a certain kind of records or some limitation. That's not how long it runs, but really how effective can, can you use it for an actual real database. Record count's the only meaningful thing I could think of, but yet would still work perfectly on any size database. It would just stop working at whatever number of records. From a technical standpoint, it's very easy to put a stop to anything that's trying to subvert use, buying into FileMaker from an infrastructure standpoint. Mm-hmm. That is completely possible. So the whole thing is if they wanted to grow their adoption rate, then they've got to give it away, make it easy, and reduce those barriers of entry. Mm-hmm. I totally agree that uh, getting giving it away in whatever form is the only way to get younger people interested. Uh, at least today, because I mean, if you have a company, um, I was telling them this, this scenario. If um, Susan, who's the receptionist, has a son who happens to be, oh yeah, my son knows a little bit of PHP, and the executive of, at a company has heard of, oh yeah, I've heard of uh, Drupal or Joomla or WordPress. We just need to get some stuff up on the web. Oh yeah, we'll go ahead and have my son Scott do it. Why did Scott get into that stuff? Well, because PHP was free. MySQL was free. Mm -hmm. He was able to get into and learn that stuff for free. Mm -hmm. 
he would have never, ever investigated or been exposed to FileMaker because that company may have not even had it in their mind of, okay, yeah, we're going to go pay you know a couple of grand for this setup. They're just not thinking that way. And right. so they need to have those opportunities out in the world for people to increase that exposure and awareness. You know, I, I got into FileMaker because really in my teens – when I started working on stuff, way before I could actually afford expensive development environments or computers or whatever, I had access to be able to play with it, or it was you know as much cheaper at the time. And that's the thing. So like the kids that that, that same scenario, the secretary son who's working on something, the kids he started that stuff when he was twelve or fifteen or whatever, and there's no way a twelve or fifteen year old would would be able to buy five hundred dollars worth of software for development. They would. Yeah, so they would nor, only nor will a parent. I mean, if, exactly. if if my kid came to me and he said, "Dad, can I have five hundred dollars to learn this software?" The first thing I'm thinking is, "Well, what other software is there out there that we can find that you can learn?" Because learning concepts of programming, logic, and flow, you can get that from many many things that are free. If your kid was a really talented photographer, and that you let him borrow your really good camera, and they said, "Hey, Dad, can I buy a copy of Photoshop for five hundred dollars?" You'd say, "No, use this other thing. It's almost as good." I'd start him on Aperture. Yeah, well, that's $100 now, right? Or $80 something? Yeah, but it's a lot less. Prove, your, prove that you can actually, you know, that you're really into this, that you can get into it. Yeah. And then when the investment is justified, then it's there. And that's what you want. You want the people out there to have the knowledge to really know FileMaker, to build really good FileMaker solutions. And when they can, then you're going to get businesses that say, wow, this is what you're showing me? You built this thing in FileMaker Advanced, and now you're showing it to me in Go on an iPad? Can you do this for my company? Yes, we can. Okay, what do we need to invest in? I think it's really going to be a numbers game, right? So if you consider the number of people who learn, who buy PHP books or learn PHP at some little level to try something, a very small percentage of those ends up actually ever building something that's used in PHP. And FileMaker is very much a knowledge worker you right. don't have to know data types. You don't have to know right. a var char versus a small int versus a big int. Right. You just make a number field. My point, though, was that a, a much larger percentage of people who buy FileMaker end up using FileMaker. You know, I'd say probably greater than 50%, maybe more, v- compared to, say, 0.1% for PHP. And that means that a huge number of people know what PHP is, know what its capabilities are, because they were able to play with it for free. If FileMaker gave away FileMaker Advanced for free... After a bunch of years, a bunch of people would have started with it, played with it, and decided it wasn't right for them, and they went to some other thing. But then from then on, they would know what its capabilities are. And then three years later, they go, oh, yeah, there's this thing that's exactly perfect for that. FileMaker, that's the natural choice. And they're not getting any of that right now by being by having their current model. And, you know, they tend to change slow because they're really kind of a conservative company. And I would encourage them to take risks and be bold. At least in this world of how kids are learning technology and the way that technology is used, you you want to get as many people using your software as possible. That is the model. If you look on, if you go on the the um, on an iPad or an iPhone right now, and you go look at, you can look at the apps, and if you go the top twenty five, you'll see that a lot of them are paid apps and they're entertainment apps. But if you click that little tab and go over to top grossing, you'll notice that out of the top ten. They're free because they have an embedded model of the, you know, purchase the in-app stuff. If FileMaker is free and you get people to use it inside, what do they end up buying? They end up buying multiple copies of FileMaker and server in order to run their organization, which whoever developed it, developed it on a free copy of Advanced. MySQL. 
free to download, free to play with. And if you want to deploy a real solution, you you buy, buy a license of MySQL. Uh, yeah, you can. I mean, for for what you're going to do, I think I forget what their licensing is, but definitely that's I I would assume that's why Oracle has it now. Yeah, I mean, it's not a free product. You have to pay for it to use it if you want to deploy for real solutions. For from a business standpoint, yeah, yeah. Nor should it be. You know, really useful things. You know, not all of them. Some things that are really useful really are free, like web browsers we use. Um, but of course, web browsers come from companies like Google, and they're free because they're advertisers supported. Yeah, somewhere there, somewhere there's always a, a profit angle. I mean, we're not in the uh, Star Trek universe yet, but <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, that's that's my thought process. If I was running FileMaker, that's just uh, one of the things that I would do differently. Just one, huh? By the way, I'd love to hear ideas from listeners. Send an email to Matt at FileMakerTalk dot com, and we'll uh, talk about it on future episodes. Yeah, do a follow up podcast to see like how many biting opinions there are against. Are you kidding me? Never give FileMaker Advanced away for free. It would completely destroy their model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? And if we're wrong, if we're totally forgetting something, tell us. Yep. Well, for now, let's just wrap this up. We'll get some. Uh, we'll get some of your feedback, and we'll talk about this on future episodes. And uh, thanks very much for listening. All right, thanks everyone. See you later.